thank you, dear friends and brothers and sisters. I, if a fellow can't preach after singing that song, he needs to quit. I'm, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that uh, those of you that are worshiping with us, and I'm looking at you right now, those of you who are worshiping with us at home, that you have joined us as well in spirit, and, and we're looking forward to the time when we can all be back here together in, in physical form, in body. And we're delighted that uh, you are continued interest in, in spiritual matters that would prompt you to, to be a part of a worship assembly this morning. I, I know that uh, we just read verse 8 as our text this morning, but I'm interested not just in what Philip said, but also why he said it. So I hope you have your Bible open to John chapter 14, because I want us to look at a few verses. Jesus was preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. And it seemed that there he could detect that there was... Uh, some some melancholy on their part because of his continued and growingly frequent uh, predictions of his impending death. And so here's the point in his in his ministry when he just gathers those men around him and says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then down a couple of verses later, he tells them, now if I go, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. Now, we need to appreciate, I think, the fact that that is the context of this, this conversation that's going on to fully appreciate why Philip said what he said in verse 8. So Jesus knew that he was going to go away. He knew that he was going to be preparing a place, not just for these men, but for all future disciples like you and me that continue to follow our Lord today and serve him faithfully. He had stated that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man could come into the Father but by him. That's verse 6 of this same chapter. And then he said in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And then he said, And from now on you know him and have seen him. He's allowing those disciples and future Bible students to be able to understand the implications of what he is saying, I think, in verse 7. It was then that Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. I like the, the translation that was just read, and it is enough for us. And I think that we could all render a hearty amen, at least on the inside, to that declaration. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. That's very similar to the Lord's own prayer, if you think about it, in John chapter 17. In verse 3, he said, And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I want us to know today, 2,000 years later, the essence of our Christianity and the very heart of our discipleship is knowing God and coming to know his sweet son, Jesus, and following him with every commitment, every aspiration, with every desire of our hearts. I really believe that Philip was expressing the universal application and desire of every human heart when he said what he said in verse 8 of our text. Because again, if we can really know God, we can then know who we are, that is in relationship with God, and, and that's the essence of it. But we also can know whom we ought to be like. Because the Bible everywhere tells us that we ought to be striving to be more like God. And that we ought to be transformed. We talked about that some last Sunday morning. More and more into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says. And so with that in mind, we now have a game plan. We understand also what we can hope for. And that is to someday see the very face of God. I'm going to allow you in a moment to think about that. To see the face of God. To be able to bask in his presence. 
for all eternity. To be acknowledged by him as his sons or daughters. What a wonderful thing that will be. And I think it's tragic that sometimes it's only within the context of a funeral. Do we say those wonderful words? Here is a someone that is lying before us today who is now meeting an appointment that we all must meet. And longing to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you get to hear those words, it will be because of what Jesus' blood has done for you. As it has covered your sin and has continued to wash away your sin as you walk in the light. 1 John 1 verse 7. I believe again that Philip was expressing the desire of every human heart. And if there is no God, on the other hand, then man is but matter. And there is no standard in the light of which we can evaluate any human action. There is no, no ultimate objective, no absolute truth to which we can say some things are right and some things are wrong. No, we're left to, 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 to flounder in a sea of confusion if there is no God. I believe it was Dostoevsky who said, if God is not, all things are permitted. That's exactly right. If there is no Supreme Court of Appeal to which we can go to determine what is right behavior and what is wrong behavior, then again, we're left to societal standards and utilitarian ethics. And we're not going to be able to say with any certainty or with any confidence that, that, that this is wrong or this is right. We all know that, I think, at some level of our, of our intuitive selves. Furthermore, th- there is nothing lasting for which we can hope. And yet Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 that he, that is God, has placed eternity in our hearts. That just tells me that that we weren't made for this world. Or as the wonderful song that we often sing says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. So we were not made for to stay on this globe. We were born for eternity. And we are bound for eternity whether we are willing to acknowledge that reality or not. But again, on the other hand, if there is no God worth serving, then there is just a brief flash of light that we know of as human existence. After that, only eternal darkness. So today, as we consider a God worth serving, let's begin at the beginning place of all human considerations by asking the question, is there a God to whom we are ultimately and morally accountable? That is very simply, does God exist? And I'm going to mention in just a moment, but I want to go ahead and set the stage now that this is not going to be a lesson on Christian apologetics. We're not trying to establish evidences for God's existence. But we're simply talking about the philosophical idea that if there is no God, where does that lead us? We have to deal with the conclusions with every premise that we establish in our lives as we build faith in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, I've referenced many, many times the inimitable baseball manager Yogi Berra who was uh, said for, known for a number of sayings, many of which made absolutely no sense until you thought about it, and then it made profound sense. He was the one who said, it ain't over till it's over. And he was also noted for having said, whenever I come to a fork in the road, I always take it. Now that's a head scratcher, because you and I know that it's never quite that simple. That when we come to a fork in the road, guess what? That means that there is a decision that has to be made. I can either go to the left or the right, or I can turn around and go back from the place from which I came. But still, I have to make a decision. That's a microcosm of life. I think in a very similar way, there's a decision to be made in the matter of how this universe came into existence and how we as the human race came to be a part of it. 
Now, the principle that we're appealing to in the field of logic is known as the law of the excluded middle. Boiling all of that down into one simple definition, that just means, and this is profound, so hang on to your hats, that either a thing is or it is not. And that makes sense too, doesn't it? I think probably if you never took a co- any course in philosophy or Christian apologetics or logic, you would know that that was right. Either a thing is or it is not. Either my car, for example, is all white or all black. But it cannot be all black and all white in the same way at the same time. In, in the area and the realm of our relationship to God, in our spiritual lives, either baptism is necessary for salvation or it is not. You see, there is a truth to be known about that matter. And the law of the excluded middle says either one is right or wrong. And we have to, to draw some conclusions based upon our study and the proper evidence in order to be able to make an informed decision about these eternal matters. And these and, and all other matters that we might consider in life, there often is no middle ground. And a, and a corresponding decision simply has to be made. When it comes to matters of cosmogony, and, and that's just the, the history of our universe, our cosmos, I, I think it's best stated in Hebrews 3 verse 4. There's where the inspired writer said, Every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. Now think about that as a premise. Either that is true or it is not. And every person has the moral and spiritual responsibility to determine. You see, nobody ha- it's not incumbent on anyone else to convince me of these matters. I'm the one who needs to take the, the reins and to decide that my soul is weighing in the balance. And so I'm going to have to determine whether that's right or wrong. Is what I see around me and even within me a product of evolution? That mere happenstance that by chance these things came to be? Or is there a loving creator who spoke all these things into existence? So every person has to consider the evidence and make an informed decision about how this universe came into existence. Either God did it in the manner specified in the pages of the Bible or it has a completely naturalistic explanation. I think I've shared this this paragraph with you before, but I'm going to do it again because it's very relevant to this discussion. Henry Morris and Gary Parker have, have written a book some years ago entitled, What is Creation Science? And in that, they comment on the very point that we're discussing. And in a very brief paragraph, they say this. In fact, as I recall, it's early on in the book for reasons that are going to become quite apparent. They say the fact is there are only two possible models of origins. It is either evolution or creation. Either the space-mass-time universe is eternal or it is not. See, there's the law of the excluded middle. If it is, then evolution is the true explanation of its various components. If it is not, then it must have been created by a creator. These are, and I underline this in my mind at least, these are the only two possible possibilities or options. In this regard, I think we have to consider the cosmological argument, which addresses the fact that the universe is here. Obviously, it is here. That's, that's where we live. And therefore, it has to be explained in some fashion. Is the universe eternal or was it created? That is, did something come from nothing or has something always been? Those are essentially the two questions that we're going to have to answer as we make our way toward faith in God. 
you know, again, it's not the objective of this lesson to identify all the reasons, and there are reasons and lots and lots of evidence for believing in God's existence, but that would require a series, and we don't have time for that this morning. But I, I want us to know that the point is that we can honestly scrutinize the evidence and, and make an informed decision about this matter. The Bible speaks on that subject, by the way, over and over again, in both Old and New Testament. For example, in Psalm 19, verse 1 of the Old Testament, the psalmist there says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Folks, there are a number of things I don't like about living in Montgomery, Alabama. But one of the things that I do like is being able to step out on my front porch or my back patio about sunset and see the beautiful sunsets that we have in this city. That's a reminder to me every night that there is a God who loves me, who created all that we see. He did that not just for our existence and for our survival, but he did it to make us happy for our enjoyment and for our exploration. God created all of these things, and if we'll just look at the firmament, if we'll look at the skies and the earth, the planet that we live on, All of those things can point us in the direction of the wonderful God who created all of these things. Paul was writing in Romans chapter 1 about the disbelieving Gentile world. In particular, that's his theme in chapter 1. These are people you might note that at one time believed in God. But then later on, Paul notes in that very text that they came to the point in their immorality where they could not live with themselves, acknowledging God's existence. So the Bible says they refused to have God in their knowledge. And three times in that chapter, as I recall, chapter verses 24, 26, and 28, it said, and God gave them up. Can you imagine being so godless and so immoral that God himself has given up on you? And yet that's what it says about the Gentiles. Now, bear in mind, again, that they have disavowed any belief in the existence of God at this point in their lives. Here's what Paul says in verse 20 of Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible open, congratulations. I hope you'll read along with me. Here's what Paul says. For since the creation of the world, his, that is, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Watch this. Paul is telling us that we can work from what we can see and extrapolate back to what we cannot see. For every effect, there must be a prior and adequate cause. That's true with the existence of the universe. That's true with everything in human existence. If there is an effect, there has to be something, a cause, that will explain that. And Paul is saying to these now disbelieving, atheistic Gentiles, that you can take what you see, work back to what you do not see, so that you can even understand his eternal power and Godhead. And then he he says in a very sobering little phrase at the end of that verse, so that they, that is the, the disbelieving Gentiles, are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because there's plenty of evidence. If you're looking for it, there's evidence stacked on top of evidence in order for us to gain a belief not only in God's existence, but also in the fact that he has made possible our salvation The writer of Hebrews reminds us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it is the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11 and verse 1. If you don't mind writing your Bible, I would encourage you to underscore 
or highlight those two words, substance and evidence, because they are critical in fully understanding the verses to come. No wonder in verse 6 he then says, and anyone who comes to God must, number one, believe that he is. Well, obviously, if I'm going to come to God, I've got to believe there is a God. And secondly, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. Who is this God we're serving? Let me mention just a few brief characteristics, and this, this lesson will be yours. First of all, I submit that a God we're serving is a God who will provide for his people. And I'm happy to announce that the Bible is chock full of attributes and testimony regarding this God we're serving. One of the beautiful themes of the Bible is the amazing providence of God. And if you want to do a topical study in your own private study, I would recommend God's providence to be that topical study. Brother Cecil has written a, a wonderful book on that subject that will give you some direction. But if you'll just trace through all the indicators and examples of God's providence in Scripture, I think, let me change that, I'm sure that you will be amazed. Even a quick perusal of both Old and New Testaments reveals a God who does care for and provide for his people. In fact, the word providence comes from two words combined, pro, which means in front of, and video, which means to see. So the word providence literally means to see in front of. And it means that God knows what is before us in our lives, and he can thus provide for us even ahead of time. He can bring circumstances and situations into such a, a, a way that, that later on, and, and we'll notice this in a moment in the New Testament, that, that God can bring about his ultimate will in our lives by his providential working. And so the word simply means to see in front of. And the Bible says that, that God knows our every need before we ask. That's Matthew 6 and verse 8. And that he can supply all of our needs according to his riches and grace in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4 and verse 19. For the simple reason that he cares for us. 1 Peter 5 verse 7. I believe that God is actively involved in the world he created. How about you? I believe God has his guiding hand in the affairs of men in order to bless his people. God is pictured throughout the Bible as a loving and, and concerned father in heaven who really wants what is best for his people. But just because I say so doesn't make it so. Let me submit very quickly, if I may, three reasons for believing in the providence of God. Number one, I believe in God's providence because it just makes good sense. That is, it's reasonable. Why would an all-powerful God create such a beautiful world and then place us in this world and then turn around and forget all about us? Go off and, and forget that he ever made us. That just doesn't make any sense, logically or spiritually. Some believe that God wound this, this old world up like a clock and that we're left to slowly wind down, left to ourselves to determine our own fate with no divine help whatsoever. Secondly, I believe in the providence of God because it's clearly taught in the Bible. That is, it's scriptural. Common sense alone would not, I don't think, prove conclusively to anyone in regards to the providence of God. But, but scripture affirms over and over again that God does provide for his people. It's good for us that we have these unmistakable affirmations of scripture. Like the one that I was just about to mention, Romans 8 and verse 28. All things work together for good 
to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I think it's imperative that we understand that in that passage, Paul is referring to the specific providence of God as it uh, has, pertains to his dealings with his own people, that is, his spiritual sons and daughters. There are other passages, like Matthew 5, verse 45, that teach God's general providence that is distributed fairly and evenly to all men. That's the passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So there are some aspects and some blessings of God's providence that are given to everyone. But that's not Romans 8.28. That's not what Paul is talking about in that passage. He's speaking of his special provisions to them that love him and that are called according to his purpose. Notice the passage does not teach that everything that happens even to a Christian is good. That's not what Paul is saying at all. That, that defies common sense. And it also defies clear affirmations of Scripture to the contrary. Like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, where Paul said, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is, there's going to be difficulties and problems for, for everyone. And children of God are not immune from the difficulties of life simply because of our citizenship and God's spiritual kingdom. We need to understand that. So Paul isn't saying that everything that happens to a child of God is good. What he is saying is that God has the, the power and the ability and the willingness to work about the circumstances in our lives so that they will eventuate in good. Good can come out of even bad circumstances because of God's working and providential hand. So it teaches that it will eventuate in good for those who love the Lord. The third and last reason I believe in the providence of God is because of biblical examples. That is, it is observable. All that you need to do is just read the Bible and to see the numerous examples that demonstrate that a God worth serving is a God who provides for his people. You can go back to Genesis 22. Abraham offering his son Isaac. Let me ask you this question. Most of you have read that, that passage. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Do you think it was accidental that there happened to be a ram caught in the thicket nearby that allowed Abraham to have an option rather than sacrificing his own son? Was that accidental or was it providential? I believe you know the answer to that question. All through the Old Testament and all through the New, we see examples like that of, of God providentially operating in the affairs of men. With the wonderful story of Joseph that begins in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, don't you think that the, the biography of Joseph is, could just easily be subtitled The Providence of God at Work? Because you can see God's providence working in Joseph's life over and over again. And time won't permit us to deal with other cases like, like Esther and Moses and Elijah and even Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul and how that he worked providentially in their lives. Suffice it to say that the Bible clearly shows a God at work among his people. No wonder James says in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And so in this regard, please note that the promise of Matthew 6.33, that promise, of course, says that if you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these material things will be added unto you. That the fulfillment of that promise is not contingent upon us living in a country that has good and favorable economic conditions. 
It does not depend on who's in the Oval Office. No, that's a promise that is given to God's people that if you will get your priorities right, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not as just one item on a list of things to do, but that if you'll make that the number one pursuit and objective in your life, God will see that these material things are added to you. That's a promise that God has taken and given to each one of us. In the second place, a God we're serving is one who provides for man's salvation. You know, many of the aspects of God's wonderful providence deal with material concerns such as food and clothing and shelter and money and having jobs. And and I I clearly think that that is the thrust, that that is the main application of Matthew 6.33 because of the context. These material things that so many people worry about, Jesus said, now if you'll just seek the kingdom first, these things will be a part of your life. And so we can easily, I think, get trapped on the side of material considerations. God's providence means that I'll never go hungry, that I'll always have clothes to wear, I'll always have a roof over my head. That's, that's what God's providence means. Now, I think God providing for the human race primarily has to do with his providing for our spiritual redemption. Don't you? The most important thing to us is not what kind of clothes we wear, what kind of car we drive, what neighborhood we live in. The most important thing, whether the world acknowledges it or not, is how we stand before God. Whether or not we're going to go to heaven. That's the most important thing and should be the thing foremost in the mind of every child of God. So that ought to be our greatest concern. The primary question that should concern us is is, is what to do with the sin problem that we all have. And we all have it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in this regard, my mind immediately goes to that great... Let's take a look at it. We're almost through. Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 7 and read down through verse 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him it knock and who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there? If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being, and here is the, the kind of give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus' argument, I think, is quite clear. If a loving earthly father will do only what is in the best interest of his children, don't you know that a loving heavenly father is going to provide the very best For his sons and daughters. Remember one of the previous points that we made. From the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Man born of woman is eternal in nature. And every one of us needs a God to provide for our salvation. And to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Little wonder that John 3.16 is often referred to as the golden text of the Bible. God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. Even less wonder that John would later write in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So much more could be said on this point. In fact, I don't think we could ever say enough to adequately convey the wonder 
and the grandeur of God's amazing grace in that while we were yet sinners, allowed his son to come into this world and die in our place. I received a letter a number of years ago that just above the signature, the man had written as a brother in Christ these words, because of a cross. And and then he signed his name immediately under that line. Maybe you've seen that in letters from brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And I thought then, and I still think, that encapsulates the very essence of our lives. Because of a cross. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we are who we are and do what we do. It's all because of a cross. And it says it all, I think, for the person who fully appreciates a God worth serving and all that he's done for us at Calvary, making possible our eternal salvation. And because of what he's done for us, we don't have to sing blessed assurance with our fingers crossed anymore. John says in chapter 2, verse 5 of his first letter, in this we do know that we are in him. That's confidence in our salvation. Not overconfidence, but the right amount of confidence based on the blood of Jesus Christ. And then a God we're serving is a God who means what he says. I have to inject this one before we quit. A person can't study the scriptures very long without coming to a deep appreciation of the fact that, that God is a God of unswerving and unwavering justice. He is a God of justice. And justice is a part of his immutable divine nature. We have to understand that. Abraham, once when he was dealing with God's treatment of the righteous and the unrighteous, and specifically he had in mind the city of Sodom, asked this question. It's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. Shall not, shall not the judge of all earth do right? I think that was intended to be a rhetorical question. At least it is for me because I know the answer to that. God is a just God. He will do what's right. And we don't have to worry when we face God in judgment as to whether God will be fair or not. Justice involves both God's protection and care of the righteous, but also his punishment of the wicked. And we're living in a society with a mindset where we want to think about and talk about the first of those two things, but not the second. We don't want to consider the fact that there is punishment for those who turn their back on God, who shake their fist in his face, who rebel against his will. They're going to suffer the consequences of those actions and those decisions. Paul said in Romans 15, 4, as we consider these Old Testament examples, the things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might, be, might have hope. That is, there are lessons to be learned from reading these examples in the Old Testament. And you can't read two pages in the Old Testament without coming to this conclusion. God means what he says about reward and punishment. I know that's not a popular theme, but it's still a biblical one. And it's one that's true and needs to be regarded. Over and over again, he told the Israelites, you do what's right and I will bless you abundantly. But you go your own way and turn your back on my way, and you're going to suffer the consequences. Allow me to humbly suggest that God has not changed his mind about that matter. He still has the same mindset in 2021 that he did back then with the Israelite people. God still means what he says about the immediate and the eternal consequences of sin. And Solomon reminds us for all time that the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 13, 15. Why? Well, Part of it's because there's still punishment for sin. 
Sometimes we're even punished in this life for our wrong choices, but we'll surely be punished in the next life if we turn our back on God. And in the New Testament, Paul writes with equal clarity, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. That's Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. To the Romans, he wrote in, in Romans 11, and verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Upon them that fail severity, but toward you goodness, if you walk in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. Paul said, we just going into life need to know what the ground rules are. That is, God is a God of goodness and severity. Goodness toward those who, who do his will, who love him, who are determined to follow in his footsteps. To those who rebel and disobey, there is only severity. Bleeding hearts with a loose view of God's justice will never understand that a God who does not mean what he says about reward and punishment is not a God worth serving. Think about it. A parent, a parent who lets one child get away with something that he would punish another child for is a parent that's going to be very difficult to either respect or obey. Isn't that right? And no system of civil government can function long if there is not punishment for breaking the laws. Even Solomon understood that in the long ago. In Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 he said, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore it is set in the hearts of men to do that which is evil. Not just punishment, but swift punishment is necessary in order to deter crime. Is what Solomon is asking us to conclude. You can't tell me that a fellow won't think twice about breaking the law if he knows that there will be swift and sure punishment. And, and spiritually speaking, you can't tell me that a reasonable person will not have cause for pause in his life if he lives his life with the absolute certainty that there is both a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Remember John's words in John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth and those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And, and once more in 2 Thessalonians 1, Verse 7 beginning, Paul wrote these words, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance, watch this, on those that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Banished, get that, from, from the very presence of God for eternity. I'm telling you this morning that a God worth serving must not only be a God of creation and a faithful provider and a loving Savior, but ultimately he must be a God who means what he says about sin and its consequences. And then finally, a God worth serving must also be a God of grace and mercy. You know, so much has been said in our religious world today about God's grace and mercy, and tragically, so much of it is just dead wrong. Some today seem to think like the Romans of old, that God's grace is a license to continue in sin that grace may abound. Romans 6.1 says, you remember Paul's reaction to that, don't you? He said, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin 
continue any longer therein. And, and we've even got people who call themselves believers today, who believe that God's grace is a license to just live any way you want to live. I'm telling you this morning that his mercy does not mean that in the day of judgment he's just going to suspend judgment and save everyone, as the universalist teaches. His grace has been aptly defined as God's unmerited favor, especially as it is extended towards sinners. Someone has described it like this, that grace has respect to sinful man as guilty, while mercy has respect to man as miserable. Or said another way, grace is when man gets what he does not deserve, and mercy is when he does not get what he does deserve. Listen to these words as we end this study. As Paul Harvey used to say, wash your ears out with this. Jehovah, a God who is merciful and gracious, abundant in loving kindness. Exodus 34, verse 6. For Jehovah your God is a merciful God, Deuteronomy 4, 31. For I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, Exodus 33, 19. And then finally, O oh, give thanks unto Jehovah, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Psalm 136 and verse 1. I don't know about you, but I do know about me. When I get to judgment, I am not going to be begging for God's justice. I'm going to be begging for his mercy. And if our only hope for eternity lay in our on meritorious deeds and what little that we may have done while we're on this globe, there's not a single one of us would have any hope. It's only because of God's mercy do we have the assurance that we will someday see his face. And isn't that a wonderful thing? It's with those thoughts in mind that John Newton, all those years ago, wrote these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. There are so many considerations involved in a sweeping subject like this. And I know we've only touched the hem of the garment this morning. And you've been so kind in your attention. I know that when we began talking about the attributes of God we're serving. That some of the definitions and some of the... Uh, of the lines overlap. For example, when you think about it, isn't it remarkable that, that God can know all things, that he knows the deepest recesses of our hearts, and yet he still loves us, and he was willing to send his son to die for us. The story is told of an elderly grandfather who was very wealthy, and as he got older, he began to lose his hearing, but because money was not an object, he got the most expensive hearing aid that was on the market. Recently devised, and, and he had heard about it, seen some advertisements, and so he decided, I'm going to spend some, a sizable amount of money for that particular high-tech uh, hearing aid, and that's exactly what he did. He was very pleased with its ability to help him hear, in fact, so much so that he went by the business where he purchased it a few weeks later to talk to the manager. And he, and he told the manager, he said, I can now pick up voices and conversations from people even in the next room. And he said, I am, I'm 100% pleased with your product. And the business owner said, well, your, your family must be happy to know that you can hear so much better. And, and the man laughed and he said, oh, I haven't told them yet. I've just been sitting and listening. And you know what? I've changed my will three times already. 
Friends, here's the real wonder of it. God knows our deepest thoughts. He knows our true motivations. And yet he loves us anyway. And he wants every single one of us to be saved. If the blood of Jesus has not covered your sins this morning, don't leave this place until they have. Allow Jesus, his death on that cross, to cover every one of your sins so that you can pillow your head tonight knowing that if the Lord were to return tomorrow, that you would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we can help you in that obedience in any way, we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.